You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Good morning and uh, welcome. You have Howard back here and Patrick Martin from our Chicago office, Caitlin Martin and Towner French from our Washington office. And uh, two pieces of good news this morning, guys. First of all, I'm absolved of all my sins. <laughs> and so that's that's the first that's the first piece of good news. I had a lot of work to do yesterday. I got it done. I also had a 36-hour technology fast, which I recommend to everybody, but just to, just don't tell our clients. And the second piece of good news is that Mark is missing the podcast this morning, so we get to take <laughs> shots at him. Um, uh, but he'll he'll be back next week. So, want to talk this morning about a couple of interesting things happening in town. Uh, one is the fight over the the debt ceiling, which seems to be the latest episode of congressional or political brinksmanship, brinkspersonship. Uh, it's, uh, it's crazy that we're back here again, but, but we're back here again. I also want to talk about the other year end stuff going on. Um, we have appropriation, we have an appropriations deadline, and then obviously we've got, uh, moving parts as far as the reconciliation bill, the multi-trillion dollar package and the infrastructure bill. And on some level, all of this is is related or will come together, I think. Um, and then breaking news overnight that an Ohio congressman, Anthony Gonzalez, former Ohio State wide receiver, I'll ignore that, uh, NFL player, uh, is, is not running for re-election, afraid for the safety of his family. He's one of the members that voted to impeach Trump and um, kind of breaking Washington Beltway news overnight. We should talk about that. But Patrick, could you set us up on on the debt ceiling? Can you summarize what's going on and and let's go from there? Definitely. And uh, we've also got Professor French in case I miss any of the procedural parts. I'll talk a little more broadly about the the politics of how this all sets up. But uh, Congress and the president need to raise uh, the debt ceiling so that we can pay our bills, that that we can pay off the credit card that we've already spent. And America can't default on its debt. So the base case is that we're not going to default because there's sort of a belief amongst all policy leaders in Washington, or at least pretty much everyone, that we can't default. So what's going on is a political stare down, and there's a little bit of history to it. In 2011, uh, an emboldened Republican House majority and a more significant minority in the Senate forced President Obama to compromise around raising the debt ceiling and put in some, some measures that would, that would force major reductions in spending uh, over the course of the next several years. And Democrats... Uh, didn't like that. They felt like it was a concession that was made at the time because we're entering an election year and the president felt his hands were tied. They felt like it set up a standard that the debt limit increase is something that can be negotiated on, which they don't feel like it should be. Uh, 
you know, like passing a CR to fund the government. There's some things you just have to do, right? And so there's a real stare down right now between the Republicans and the Democrats. The Republicans are saying, uh, mainly Leader McConnell, you guys have the majority uh, and the White House and the rules of reconciliation that you're about to use to spend 3.5 whatever trillion dollars allow you to raise the debt ceiling through that uh, procedural measure. You should do it through that and not hold us responsible uh, for participating in this process. And you guys just do it yourselves and avoid all this. The Democrats are saying, no, we both parties are responsible for having a raise this. Both parties are responsible for racking up uh, the charges that we ultimately have to pay for. And we should just pass a clean extension or a raise of the debt ceiling and move on. And both sides are staring each other down. I mean, I'm not really seeing either side kind of blank. Pelosi and Schumer, uh, with the support of the president, have you know, they had an opportunity to include it in the reconciliation instructions, and they didn't. They didn't want to spend the money. They didn't want to take out priorities from their their $3.5 trillion to do it. And McConnell is saying very firmly, uh, we're not gonna, our members are not going to be responsible for raising the debt ceiling. So you have this stare down all while we're inching closer and closer to the edge of this cliff that we've never been down to before and, and frankly can't go down. So uh, Professor French, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you think this ultimately plays out, because it's definitely a, a stare down for sure. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know that uh, Republicans are against raising the debt ceiling. I mean, McConnell's voted several times to raise the debt ceiling. But his point here, uh, not to take away Caitlin's talking points, I'm sure that she wanted to, uh, to deliver. His point is that Democrats control the House, the Senate and the White House. And they have the procedural tools in place to be able to raise it unilaterally, to raise the debt ceiling unilaterally. And and I, Patrick, you you touched on it. What we have here is a messaging uh, war between two messages. Either from the Democratic standpoint, you got to Trump's got to pay his credit card bill. You know, the Republican Party spent a bunch of money while Trump was president, and they have to pay that bill, and that means raising the debt ceiling to accommodate that. Or on the Republican side. You're saying Pelosi, Schumer and, and President Biden are trying to pass a three and a half trillion dollar bill uh, on top of another trillion in bipartisan infrastructure on top of the uh, almost two trillion for the American Rescue Plan. And uh, as a result, the debt ceiling is going to get hit. So you better start uh, figuring out how to raise the debt ceiling to pay for it, I think. But either way, for Republicans, the debt ceiling forces a conversation. Uh, it forces a conversation about our spending habits for the last however many years or that were, were covered. And so uh, Republicans like having a debt ceiling debate. They just don't want to vote for this one because they feel like it will embolden the $3.5 trillion plan. Caitlin, do, do the, does the American public actually care that much or is this just beltway shenanigans? Well, I think this is just beltway shenanigans unless we have a government shutdown, in which case, yeah, yes, then the American public will certainly care. But this is another example where you just got to love uh, Leader McConnell. And he pretty much said this week, read my lips, we are not, Republicans are not helping raise the debt ceiling and Democrats want to go it alone on all of these, the spending and this priority. Well, go ahead, go ahead and include this and, and let's, let's move on. So I, I do think um, no, I don't think the American public are really focused on what's happening with the debt ceiling. I think they're concerned about the debt of this country and some of the spending. Um, but 
I think, you know, we'll, we'll see this hopefully get resolved in the next couple of weeks. Of course. And this is why, by the way, Democrats hate Mitch McConnell with a passion and hatred. I can't even begin to describe to you. This is classic Mitch McConnell setting up a fake standard for how the debt limit should be raised that has never existed. It's exactly what he did with the Supreme Court. He, he's like, well, because Democrats are in control, it should have to be done this way. Says who? There's no rule that says that that because you have the majority in the White House that you have to pass it through reconciliation. That that hasn't that that isn't some standard that's existed. The same way uh, he created the standard with well, if there's majorities here, then the president can nominate a Supreme Court justice. But if this party's in control, that none of that. It is all complete and total BS. And uh, listen, I don't blame Leader McConnell for. Uh, taking the position of his caucus and trying to stand firm. They're tired of getting rolled. They hate being in the, in the minority and they feel like on issues of debt and spending, they always have the upper hand. And if you look at recent history, I can't politically blame him for what he's doing because it worked last time. The Democrats blinked, they cut this deal, and now they feel like they've set a standard for anytime Democrats are in control and we run up to the debt ceiling, we can get them to make concessions on spending. So Politically, I can't blame him for what he's doing, but the hypocrisy, per usual, is just unbearable. It's not hypocrisy, Patrick. The Democrats and and the Democratic majority are fundamentally reshaping this economy, our our social fabric of this country, with this $3.5 trillion bill. They're going it alone. And so fine, let them own this. I don't think this this is not hypocrisy. We've blown up all the norms. Republicans wanted a loan on tax reform, which wasn't entirely paid for, which is part of what's racked up this bill that's made us reach the debt ceiling again. So it is not like the perception that Republicans are trying to create that since Democrats took office several months ago, the reason we're hitting the debt ceiling is solely and entirely because of what the Democrats have done since January is a lie. That isn't true. And the Republicans were in control of government not that long ago. And that's where a lot of these charges got racked up. So both parties are responsible for us reaching the debt ceiling. And both parties should be responsible for making the legislative decision to to raise it. So how does it end? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that uh, the American public is certainly going to care about is when the government shuts down. Uh, and, or we and default, right? That would, they'd, well, I think they'd care yeah, about I mean, that. Yeah. No, I mean, they don't, I don't know that they care about default as much because they don't understand <laughs> default. Uh, default, maybe it's, yeah, it's never happened. That's true. You know, the one time we came close, as Patrick said, was 2011, and, and the United States uh, got its uh, credit rating downgraded, right. which was, uh, which it had. Right. It had consequences. It big time. Guys, I live in Illinois. That happens on like a weekly basis here. We've had like junk credit rating. My yeah, Illinois is a junk bond state. So, I mean, you know, what are you going to do? But uh, but no, I mean, so what is going to happen procedurally moving forward is that Pelosi and Schumer had a conversation with President Biden yesterday, and they're going to tie a debt ceiling increase to the government uh, continuing to be funded. The government runs out of money at, at on September 30th at midnight. And then the debt ceiling is going to expire somewhere mid to late October. I think the guess right now is October 25th. But uh, debt ceiling is interesting because it's all about living as though you had no credit card. Uh, So the government has to bring in receipts. 
uh, and then it can pay out. It can pay out uh, Social Security benefits or Medicare, or it can pay out, you know, your subsidies on on whatever government program it is, but only if it brings money in. And obviously, the federal government, uh, since well before World War II, uh, with, with the exception of a couple split seconds in time, essentially, uh, has rarely uh, brought in more money than it expends. And so it will force necessarily uh, expenditures to not go out for Medicare reimbursements to not happen, for Social Security checks to not go out, things along those lines, because it doesn't have that amount of money. But what we have here is a potential of a government shutdown on September 30th that may even bleed into the debt ceiling uh, being breached in, in the end of October, uh, which will most definitely uh, cause chaos in, in financial markets, will will obviously uh, cause chaos for the American public as the federal government potentially sh- shuts down. Pelosi and Schumer uh, are going to package these two things together, an extension of government funding. Uh, and a raise of the debt ceiling or a a postponement of the debt ceiling till a date certain, probably December of 2022, uh, post midterm elections, uh, and send those, they're going to pass it through the House next week and send it over to the Senate. McConnell's going to vote it down because it contains the debt ceiling. And so there we are back at square one again, uh, with just uh, less than a week to go before the government shuts down. The thing is, we know government shutdowns are a political loser. So it it seems like McConnell seems like the R's would essentially be blamed. It seems to me that they'd be blamed for shutting down government if they don't agree to the to to a continuing resolution. I think what good. I think McConnell's betting on them being in the minority and not getting blamed, even if they're I think I think both sides are betting yeah. on the public getting confused by whose fault it is like that. I, I always kind of think in a very cynical way, that's what's happening here, that that if the government shuts down, there's a perception that, well, the Democrats are in the White House and they control both houses of Congress. So it must be their fault. I don't know if that's right, but I think that's kind of the calculation. I think McConnell's calculation was that Republicans don't get blamed for debt ceiling breaches, as you said earlier. So then Pelosi yeah. said, all right, fine, then we'll we'll tack on the government funding piece, which Republicans do routinely get blamed for, and we'll send it on to you. And this is just a, smart. Yeah. a one-upsmanship of uh, trying to figure out who ultimately takes the blame at the end of the day. One other thing Democratic leadership's betting on, to again, to always kind of betting on how the public's going to perceive and what they're going to understand. While McConnell and, and everyone who said is it is correct that you can include a debt ceiling raise as part of reconciliation, I don't think Democratic leadership is betting that the public is going to care that that's one measure you can do it. If they just, as we get closer to the precipice, if they just keep putting up votes, uh, to, to pass a, a clean debt ceiling extension or with a government funding bill, and it keeps failing 50-50 because not enough Republicans will join to pass it. I, I think they're just betting that the the pure perception and that vote, as we get closer, the public's going to gonna see that and they're going to say, okay, well, this is the Republicans' fault. And I think that's what Democratic is, leadership is betting is, on. Is reconciliation, Caitlin, even a viable path here? I mean, we'll, we can talk about this a little bit more later, but... It doesn't seem like the Democrats are coalescing yet around a reconciliation package. That just the, the fact that it's single party doesn't mean that the single party all agree with one another. And it's not like a final reconciliation package is on the horizon. So that's not 
is it an is it an option? Well, I agree with you, Howard, in that I have some skepticism about whether or not this massive reconciliation bill is actually going to make it through at the end. You know, we've got some big fights in the House this week. Most of the major committees, Ways and Means, ENC, um, held their markups on the House package this week. It was a whirlwind of a week. Many of those markups went into the wee hours of the morning. And we saw a big fight, particularly among moderate Democrats, on some of these pay-fors on the prescription drug piece. Um, and we're also hearing from the Senate, from Senators Manchin, from Senator Cinema, that $3.5 trillion is, is not something that they're going to go for. Um, there's a lot of consternation among moderate Democrats in the House on why is Speaker Pelosi making us vote for something that we know is going to get pared down and take these hard votes, that we know is going to get pared down and cut significantly in the Senate? I'm not entirely convinced that they're that that they've got the votes over there. And I think there's yeah. a lot more senators other than Manchin and Cinema who are letting them kind of stay in the spotlight on this that have some concerns as well. Yeah. I mean, my view, just to be clear, is that ultimately something will be passed, but it isn't going to be 3.5 trillion and it isn't going to be in October. Um, it's going to take time. And so I don't think that that's a viable legislative vehicle for the debt ceiling. Before raise we hit the because, deadline. Yeah. So, and, and, the, and the train's already left the station, right, Towner? We've, they didn't include it. The House's process has begun. I think we're, I mean, I think it, we're, we've moved on from it, right? I don't know if they can even well, redo it. At politically, politically, they've moved on from it. They said it's not going to happen and they didn't include it uh, when they considered the budget resolution. You can take up the budget resolution again, include okay. debt ceiling instructions, spin off a new reconciliation bill that just deals with debt, and pass it then through the House and Senate. That takes time. I mean, that's you'd have yeah. to go through the whole consideration of the budget again. You would have to uh, then take that individual reconciliation package dealing with the debt ceiling, take it back through the committees and the House and the Senate again. That's a three-week-plus process that would certainly derail the $3.5 trillion effort that they're trying to charge forward on right now. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. So um, it is possible. There's no doubt about that. It is feasible, but it's not likely. And look, yeah. this isn't just a matter of not being able to pay our bills. It's, I mean, this is the full faith and credit of the United States government. This is, it, it, this is like, it's everything. It's, it's the fundamental under, underpinning of, of our economy, of financial markets. It's, it, it isn't going to happen at the end of the day. I mean, they're gonna some. There's some path here where they they raise the where they raise the debt ceiling. It it can't happen. And and the mere fact that they're playing this game of political brinksmanship, I mean, that alone is damaging from a U.S. credibility perspective. The whole world watches what we do, and I mean, they care less and less every day because we make asses out of ourselves more and more every single day. Um, I, I think there's two quick things, if I could interject, yeah. Howard, just to say, you know, from a Republican standpoint, they watch the Democrats not included in the reconciliation instructions. Then in the House, you have what's called the Gephardt rule, named after Dick Gephardt, who was a former Democratic majority leader for the House. He had a rule that he had put in place that said, 
whenever the House considers and passes a budget, it automatically sends a debt ceiling increase for the future fiscal year, so through September 30th of 2022, over to the Senate for their consideration. House doesn't even have to vote on it. And when the the uh, Speaker Pelosi brought the budget up in the House this year, she actually had her rules committee turn off that rule. Mm. So they didn't send an automatic debt ceiling increase for the fiscal year over to the Senate. Um, and wow. so from the Republican standpoint, they're watching and saying – they're looking for a fight steps to make this a political issue. So we're going to we're going to force your hand. McConnell's got to force your hand on it because you have gone out of your way to ensure that you didn't use any of the procedural uh, tools available to raise the debt ceiling. Yeah, they're they're. I feel like they're definitely spoiling for a fight on it. It's we talked about some previous podcasts. They hate what happened in 2011 and they're they're they're, you know, insistent that it's not going to happen again. But it's it's a scary situation for sure. I, but why did Patrick, why did Pelosi do that? Uh, I imagine just that they want the, I think they, they seem to be wanting, maybe I imagine Towner that even if you send it automatically over without a vote, you st- it still has to be paid for as part of reconciliation, right? No. So under the Gephardt rule, it just spins off a separate resolution. It's not a reconciliation piece of legislation. It just, spins off a set a separate resolution deemed passed by the house and sends it over to the senate that would you know theoretically be another viable alternative you know the speaker's saying right now and so is majority leader schumer and so is the president we need buy-in we need bipartisan buy-in on raising the debt ceiling and we're not going to carry this by ourselves to patrick's point we're not going to democrats are not going to carry this in a democrat only uh, standpoint. And certainly you can understand that. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Republicans have never really been able to raise the debt ceiling on their own when they've been in power. They've always needed uh, Democratic votes in the House and in the Senate to be able to carry it through. And so, you know, I think the the understanding there from the from the Democratic Party is saying, hey, we always help you raise the debt ceiling and we don't agree with a lot of your spending. Why yeah. don't you help us raise the debt ceiling here? And I think that's that's a fair argument, but it certainly doesn't uh, uh, hold a lot of political weight at this given moment. Okay. Right. Well, we shall see. Uh, let's move on to, I mean, we've been touching on, on it already, the reconciliation package and um, where that stands. Towner set us up. Uh, set us up on that. Yeah. So we've, as Caitlin mentioned uh, earlier, we've cleared through all the House committees at this point. So each of the House committees is considered their pieces of it. Uh, each is given a, a set amount they can spend uh, and they've all crafted their pieces and they pass them through the committees. Uh, there's one surprise, but it's not a big deal right now. And that's the drug pricing uh, piece went down in the House Energy and Commerce Committee on a tie vote, 29 to 29, three Democrats uh, three moderate Democratic members switched and, and voted against it. They want a, a, a pared down drug pricing package um, that was supposed to raise $750 billion, by the way. Um, and uh, so now they have a little bit of a budget hole, but Ways and Means Committee was able to uh, was able to pass most of that package still under their instructions and pass along. So we have I like how seven hundred and fifty billion dollars is now a small just a uh, little hole, a rounding error. Yeah. It's like a leak. Yeah, more than anything else. Um, but so now all the committees are done. 
So procedurally, we'll watch and see the House Budget Committee uh, act uh, sometime probably early next week. Uh, and their job is strictly pro forma. They take all the pieces. They can't make any changes. They piece them together in a big package and they report that package to the House of Representatives. And then Speaker Pelosi schedules it for a vote, which could be as early as midweek next week. I, I um, uh, you know, I, I told a bunch of colleagues about uh, my hunt for Red October uh, thing. I don't know. I love that movie. Uh, Speaker Pelosi is turning into the torpedo before it can arm itself. She is ramming ahead saying, I bet moderates can't organize fast enough to oppose this thing. And uh, and so, yeah, it's she's trying to move ahead very quickly with it. She's definitely going to make some significant changes. The speaker has the authority with the rules committee, which she appoints the majority members of uh, to make a significant uh, series of changes to the bill uh, before it would go to the House floor for a vote. So she's counting votes desperately right now, trying to figure out what policies need to be changed, edited, removed uh, to be able to, to gain 218 votes on the House floor. Uh, assuming she can do that, it moves over to the Senate. Senate committees have already been working uh, with their House counterparts uh, in, in in part, they have uh, and have been working on their own, certainly, because 50 Democratic senators certainly have their own priorities they'd like to put in this bill. Uh, but it's going to spend several weeks over on the Senate side, uh, bowing to the wishes of Senators Manchin and Cinema, as well as being loaded up uh, additionally with some some other priorities that Democratic senators have. Caitlin, do- you, you expressed some skepticism earlier with respect to whether this gets passed at the end of the day. Does it does it make it out of the House? Well, I, I was I was going to laugh when Towner was talking about Speaker Pelosi trying to get it through next week before the moderate Democrats are able to organize. And it just makes me think, God, I love the way that we legislate in this country. Um, it's a broken process. This is why you don't do bills like this. It's the uh, largest tax increase since 1968. It would increase uh, taxes for the upper middle class. And Biden's breaking his own promise and raising taxes on those less than $400,000 a year. If you look at some of these other tax increases, like the tobacco tax increase, um, how small businesses might be treated. So I think that Pelosi is, is... I think she's not giving the moderate Democrats quite enough, um, quite enough respect. And we will see next week what happens with this vote. I don't know is is the answer, but so, but this is a problematic yeah. bill for in a lot of ways. Patrick, you're you're a moderate Democrat in a swing district. How are you thinking about this? Yeah, like you're Jared point. Golden in Maine. How are you? How are yeah. you thinking about this? I mean, Towner's point is spot on uh, what she's doing. And you have a group of moderate Democrats in the House that really laid down their negotiating shit on making sure that the bipartisan bill can pass. So I think if you're Speaker Pelosi, you're thinking, I'm going to honor my commitment to those guys. And the only real box she still needs to check that I think has a significant enough group that's united, public and firm is on SALT. Uh, and I'd love Towner's thoughts. I, th- I think you could see um, her making a, a final change to give some, you know, to give relief there because those members have been so public and so firm that they're not going to vote for in the House. But I think she feels like I, I think I think she just feels like I'm close enough on the numbers where if we do this quickly and I don't give them enough time 
to coalesce that that we can get it through. It'll be, I'm sure, 218 right on the nose. But yeah, if you're a moderate Democrat in the House, look, the biggest problem if you're a moderate Democrat in the House is you're going to vote for something that's ultimately going to get slimmed down in the Senate. And this is what Stephanie Murphy has been saying. A bunch of other moderate House Democrats have been saying it's terrible to have to vote for something that includes a bunch of provisions that you're going to get attacked for that are probably not even going to become law. It's it's just it is the the ultimate thing that progressives don't understand about running in a swing district. And they're going to have to bear the brunt politically with absolutely no upside. And all of the sort of slimming down and the I trim the package that action will all be in the Senate. And so, you know, the same way uh, in my formative years in Congress, I watched a lot of good House Democrats uh, toe the party line and vote for a cap and trade bill that never had more than 53 or 54 uh, votes in the Senate on the Democratic side. It, it's a shame to have to watch a lot of members vote for a package that's way bigger than what will ultimately become law. Yeah. So is is Pelosi I, just I is she just conceding the House in 2022? Is that what's uh, well, going on, Caitlin? No, I, I, I don't. So. I don't think so. I just don't think. And and I actually agree with this. I, I don't really think. I think we've seen enough examples over the last several years that like you cannot draw a direct line between passing a major piece of legislation and holding your congressional majority. I think Pelosi and Schumer view this as their big governing opportunity to check as many boxes on the Democratic wish list as possible. And whether we keep the House or lose the House, we're going to use uh, our majorities while we have them. Yeah, I think, but I think you have a three-vote majority in the House. Yeah. And you have people like Stephanie Murphy and Jared Golden, yeah. who they're the reason you have the House in the first place. Yeah. And I, I don't I think you can draw a line. It. Yeah. I think you can draw a line. I mean, you know, we watched the House flip over cap and trade. For example, you know, a bunch of members, moderate Democrats had to walk the plank on cap and trade and and it didn't yeah. get through the Senate and they lost. And Obama said, shoot, sorry, guys. Um, you know, we watched it on ACA, on Affordable Care Act, on Obamacare, and they lost. Well, um, what I meant on drawing a line is yeah. 93, they didn't have a successful legislative effort and they lost. And in 2010, they did have a successful legislative effort and they lost. So I think the Democratic leadership is like, we're probably going to lose the House no matter what. So yeah. let's pass what a majority of the caucus wants. Right. That's what I, well, think, I think. That's true. The kind where of are we headed? Where, I mean, where are we headed with a, a political system and and a legislative system where slowly but surely all the moderates go by the wayside. It's horrible. I mean, I'm, I'm telling, I tell my Democratic friends all the time. I mean, the, the vitriolic hatred that progressives have for Joe Manchin and these people. I mean, I, it's stunning to me. Like, I remember Jim DeMint Towner when we were back on the Hill saying, I'd rather have 30 conservative Republican senators than a majority of wishy-washy senators or something like that. I, I just don't understand that. <laughs> I, I don't understand that at all. I mean, I don't want to be a plurality party. Like, I want to be a majority party. And, and I, I don't understand um, why the base of the party seems to hate people who have to run, not in Brooklyn or Chicago or San Francisco, but in real red rural Republican parts of the country. And it I don't understand it. And the other thing that there's a misconception too that moderates, and that you see this in the press and you see this from, from progressives, that moderates 
are scared of losing re-election, and that's the only reason they don't want to vote for this. Moderate Democrats are not liberal Democrats. A lot of them don't want to vote for a $3.5 trillion spending package, not because they're worried about the politics, but because they don't believe in that large an expansion of government. So you have to take people at their word for what you know kind of government they want to run. But I, I see it on both sides. I mean, I know we're going to move on to the primary situation, the Republican Party. I mean, if there is a litmus test in both parties right now. And I'd want to know how big the size of the imaginary party that Howard, you and Towner and Caitlin and I are all in, because I feel like we we all have a lot more in common than the extremes of, of both the parties right now. Yeah, I mean, and that's where most of the country is. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's just this massive disconnect between our politics and our policy. And gerrymandering is a heck of a drug. I I guess so. Uh, Apparently so is impeachment. I mean, overnight, as I mentioned earlier, Anthony Gonzalez, rep from Ohio, not he he voted for he voted voted to impeach Donald Trump. Um, He said he's not running again. He was running against a, a, a former Trump staffer, I believe, in his primary. He thought he'd win, but his family was getting death threats or or threats of harm and and he said it wouldn't be very fun anyway to be a member of a trump dominated republican house of representatives so i mean on that side of the aisle it's just it's so distressing it's just so distressing what's you know the marginalization of people like that like liz cheney the people that actually were are willing to Vote on principle. Yeah, it's distressing, Towner. Yeah, I, you know, like let's not kid ourselves. Ohio is not the swing state it was in two thousand. Ohio is no. a red state now. It and, is, and it's Trump country, whether you like it or not. Uh, same with Liz Cheney. You know, the 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 American West is uh, until you cross into that great uh, liberal bastion of California and Oregon and and Washington on the coast. That's Trump country, whether we like it or not right now. There are more Trump supporters there than than there are anywhere outside of the deep south. So, um, you know, the the bottom line here is Gonzalez probably wasn't going to win. I think he knew it when he voted for impeachment. And do you want to have the fight? I don't know if you want to have the fight or not. I don't I don't know that I had. I certainly wouldn't want to have the fight if it were me uh, uh, running. I probably would do the same thing Gonzalez did. But. but- it, Look, it's a reality in the party today. Politicians are not high on principle to begin with. <laughs> like, let's just call a spade a spade. They're not exactly, they're not exactly known for their um, strong principled stances. Here, you have people who are willing to stand up under immense pressure and vote to impeach this incredibly popular figure in the Republican Party. <laughs> And and they get essential. They're they're out of Congress. And so you wonder why uh, politicians who have been around for a long time are largely unprincipled. Uh, this would be a good example. It's. I just. I don't know how to. How do we fix it? I mean, it's subject for another podcast. But how on both sides of the aisle, Patrick? How do we? How do we fix this, Caitlin? It's like. It. 
the the extremes are are dominating and i know it's primaries and money and blah 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 but how does it and and also yes what the job is or what it's supposed to be too i mean you know now when you go to washington you know what committees you get on and how much time you spend on them and if if you become a good legislator and a respected legislator and you can you know you can deliver for your district none of that really matters anymore at all and i think that's why you're seeing members you know you've just seen huge waves of retirements over the last several uh cycles because i think people are just saying i'd rather choose to do something else with my life um than be in this constant political cycle of recrimination like some of these people really want to do good and if you don't feel like the system's setting you up uh to be able to do that you know, I, I just think a lot of these people for for as cynical as we all can be about Washington, you know, in my experience, many of the members of Congress on both sides in the U.S. Senate are like really smart, talented people that yeah. frankly could be successful at a whole bunch of other things. And I think the job really appears to be increasingly fun for people who are independently wealthy and don't have to worry about, you know, providing for their families and people who are just so obsessed with politics and attention that they literally can't do anything else with their lives because they would just, you know, keel over. So if that's what Congress is going to be made up of going forward, really rich people who this is like a fun little job that they can have, because what else are they going to do? Play golf every day or just the hyper politicized kind of screw loose people who, you know, want as many hits on cable news a day as they can get, that is not going to be a positive reflection of sort of what is good and right about America. Caitlin, do you, do you think that people who are on the right are doing this because they think Trump is going to be the standard bearer for the party in 2024? No, and I'm a little less um, pessimistic and cynical than than Patrick is. I think, look, the House has always been the more just popular. in general, not the, about this, just in just in, in general. <laughs> the House has always been the more populist body. We don't see this quite as much in the Senate. Yes, we're losing a lot of good Republican House members that I'm sad to see go. Gonzalez is one of them. He was, I think, a very principled member of the House. He, what's ironic is, yes, he did vote to impeach President Trump, but then when you look at his voting record prior, he voted with the Republican Party, with leadership, with President Trump, 90 plus percent of the time. So it's it's this, I think we're, we're turning a page. We're going to move past this. I don't, I, I don't, I'm not quite as pessimistic. We're losing some good folks in the House. It's a shame. These threats are a shame. Congresswoman Nancy Mace, another rising star in the Republican Party, had her home vandalized. I mean, this this is a shame. It's sad that this is happening, and and we we've got to do better. But I, uh, I I'm just not quite as concerned about it as as I think that this is going to work its way. Most members of Congress you talk to will say there's a handful of votes in a in a long congressional career that define your career, and uh, you know you got to figure out how you're going to manage those, uh, and it's going to have a huge impact on your career. Certainly, the vote to impeach. Trump was one of those votes. And some members took, uh, very few members, 10 of them, took a principled stand. uh, And some of them did not, either because they altruistically felt that uh, the president should not be impeached or or whatever else uh, their thinking was. But it was one of those votes uh, that defines a congressional career. And and, uh, unfortunately, 
Uh, and I say, unfortunately, as a Republican, I, I don't like what's happening because I like moderates. I like them to be in Congress. And I like to, uh, unlike Jim DeMint, as Patrick said, I like uh, for us to control the levers of government and actually be the governing party. Um, but uh, unfortunately, there's uh, uh, there's always a conflict within parties over, um, you know, the the. Uh, unilateral support of the party's agenda versus the decision to be a governing entity. Towner, I agree well completely said, on that. And and just, I think the way that we've seen things change in, let's say, the last 25 years is those votes that defined a career, it usually was the voters who ultimately decided whether or not, you know, they wanted you to stay. I'm thinking of... Uh, Marjorie Mavisky, the woman from Pennsylvania, who was the, you know, that final vote on the Clinton budget and that that cost her a congressional career, but she said she'd do it again. But the, the voters voted the other way. You know, in 98, uh, when President Clinton was impeached, there were a small handful of Republican senators who didn't uh, vote to remove him from office. The idea that there would have been political retribution for them by the leadership of the Republican Party was unthinkable, right? It was viewed as like, a principled vote and you decide how you come down. It's just unbelievable. 25 years later, taking a principled vote like that. Now the political price they're paying and the retribution they're receiving from their own party leadership. That to me is, is what's changed. It's not the, it's not the voters in a general election saying, you know, we, we want to go the other way. It's, it's, you're being purged. I mean, you aren't allowed to have those those principled votes that define your career. And that, that I think, is a real shame. Patrick, we didn't see any of those 10 members get kicked off committees. We didn't see, I mean, there wasn't, other than Liz Cheney, as far as the political retribution, which we've litigated this with her role as, as the head of communications for the Republican Party, we didn't see a lot of retribution from yeah, but they're all getting primary. Leadership. It's, not about, it's not about Kevin McCarthy taking them off committees. And it's about Donald district. Trump. It is about President Trump having a sole focus on getting rid of anyone from the Republican Party who he doesn't view on his team. And that isn't going away, Caitlin. I know I feel sympathy for you because I know you want it to go away. I know you want to move to a post-Trump world, but we are not there. It's not happening. We, we have we are still in the middle of this. Right. I just think it's disingenuous to say that Republican leadership in the House is purging these folks because that's not indeed. No, case. I didn't totally that. agree I meant, with you I meant, on I meant the frustration. The re- I meant Republican leadership of the party, which is Trump. That's what I meant. Well, I didn't mean the congressional leadership. They're they're not they're not the well, <laughs> they report to him. Well, guys, on that note, let's wrap it up. Uh, it's been spirited as always. The uh, footnote, the Schweitzers head to the heartland this weekend to the capital of the United States of America, otherwise known as Ann Arbor, Michigan. So uh, <laughs> so go blue. Uh, and uh, we will be back next week. Uh, Mark will be joining us again if we let him back. I think I think we did pretty well in his absence. Um, and thanks, everybody, for joining us. We appreciate your listenership and we will be back. Thank you. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.